Hello, and welcome to The P-Value, a podcast about science, philosophy, and everything in between. The P-Value is an initiative of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. Children of the 80s will vividly recall the opening sequence of the sci-fi movie Gattaca where a genetic test at birth determines that the protagonist of the movie, Vincent, is a genetic invalid. Vincent has a high likelihood of various diseases, including a 99% probability of a heart disease and death by 32 years. This prognostication has a huge impact on his future, limiting insurance, childcare, education, and most of his choices in life. The impact of being a genetic invalid is so dire that Vincent's parents decide to screen the embryos for his sibling, Anton, prior to implantation so that he is free of any dispositions to genetic disadvantages, ranging from baldness to myopia and obesity, on the grounds that they want the best child they can possibly have. Gattaca goes on to follow Vincent as he attempts to overcome his diagenetic lot in life and become a space traveller by buying someone else's superior genetic identity. While Scatica and the sort of future it describes sit in the realms of science fiction, some worry that the current genetic technology may lead us in a similar direction. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Brown, and today in The P-Value, we're going to take a bit of a dive into some bioethics and consider the reality of contemporary personal genomics. What sort of things can and can't we do with personal genomic technology? What can we expect in the future? And what sort of ethical conundrums does this scientific advance raise for us? So what is personal genomics? It's an umbrella term, and it covers a range of technologies for sequencing, analysing and interpreting the genomes of individuals. Most of you listening to this podcast will probably have actually had a genetic test, even if you don't realise it. In Australia... Newborn babies are routinely tested for cystic fibrosis, phenylketonuria, and a variety of other diseases that might not be obvious at birth via the government-funded Guthrie or Hilprick test, and this has been the case for quite some time. You also likely know people who have had other genetic screening or testing, such as testing for a disposition to breast cancer, prenatal testing like the NIPS test, or an Ancestry.com or 23andMe ancestry analysis. All of these sorts of personal genomics technologies involve taking a small sample of DNA, typically in the blood or saliva, from an individual. Once the DNA from those samples have been extracted and amplified through various techniques, all or parts of the code of amino acids which make up the individual genes are then sequenced. Once the genetic information has been obtained in this way, various analysis techniques can then be applied to it to work out what the genetic information tells us about individuals. In some cases, there's a particular target gene or genes that's being looked for. For example, when we're testing for the absence or presence of specific disease-related genes. This is what we're doing when we're doing the Guthrie or Hillprick test. We're looking for the absence or presence of specific disease-related genes. In other cases, such as the sort of direct-to-consumer testing done by companies like 23andMe and AncestryDNA, 
larger strings of DNA are compared with databases to make claims about ancestry, relatedness and disposition to certain traits. Personal genomic tests are done for so many purposes. In the case of direct-to-consumer testing, our interest is typically in ancestry or just curiosity. Many of you will know, for example, people contacted by long-lost relatives found via direct-to-consumer tests, or those that swear their family came to Australia with the first fleet on the grounds of such a test. Genomic analysis done in a more medical context, through a GP or specialist, is typically focused on improving health and well-being and takes several forms. There are tests for the presence or absence of specific health conditions such as testing for Huntington's disease or Tay-Sachs disease, where the presence of a particular gene determines whether or not you have the disorder. There's also testing for the presence of genes that dispose us to more complex traits, such as type 2 diabetes, some cancers and heart attack, where the genes inform us of a risk, but not a certainty, of whether or not you will get the disease. Another prominent area of testing is carried out for reproductive purposes. For example, we have carrier screening, which is done on prospective parents to see if they have deleterious genes which could be expressed in their offspring. There's also prenatal and pre-implantation screening for health conditions in embryos and fetus. This set of genetic tests are typically used by people to guide their reproductive choices. For example, discovery that you and your partner are carriers of a particular disease may result in you having pre-implantation testing of your embryos and IVF, rather than opting for a straightforward natural conception. Ethically, personal genomic testing raises a raft of questions for society, and that's where we're going to turn next. Over the past decade, there have been several high-profile examples of genetic testing leading individuals to take significant prophylactic action against possible disease. In 2013, for example, American actress Angelina Jolie had a preventative double mastectomy, having found out that she carried the BRCA1 gene, which increases the lifetime risk of ovarian cancer up to 60% and breast cancer up to 80%. In 2015, she had further surgery to remove her ovaries, and undergoes extra monitoring to ensure early detection of any cancer should it arise. As our knowledge of the genetic risk factors for various cancers grows, such testing is likely to become more commonplace and raises the question, would you get tested for a disease risk if you could? Jolie's choice to undergo testing for the BRCA1 gene and then to respond with preventative surgery reflects a common view that it's best to nip disease in the bud and that knowing about a risk is always a good thing. But genetic testing offers some reason to pause on that maxim. Whilst in some cases genetic testing provides information to individuals via which they can reduce their risk of disease, such as in the BRCA1 case, this isn't always true. Not all genes we can test for are what we call actionable. For example, if you have a positive genetic test for Huntington's disease, there's no treatment. 
It's a recessive disease and all those with two Huntington's genes end up developing the disease and there's nothing that can be done about it. Nonetheless, given that the disease itself is relatively late onset, many want to know they're going to develop it so they can plan their lives accordingly. Not all people though. Some prefer just to not know if they're going to get a nasty disease later in life. The burden of knowing is just too much. What do you think? Would you prefer to know that you're going to get a disease later in life, even if you can't do anything about it? Or is it better just not to know? Whilst this is a very real question for those with a family history of these sorts of diseases, situations where we can have definitive genetic tests for a disease are actually quite rare. Typically, the relationship between your genes and disease is much more complex than this. And how best to respond to a positive test is even less straightforward. Most genetic tests provide information about a risk of a disease arising rather than a certainty. This is because most diseases are the product of a combination of multiple genes and the environment. Whilst we can establish which genes are associated with a disease, their presence in a person's genome doesn't give us a guarantee that they're going to get the disease. We see this in the case of BRCA1. It significantly increases the risk of breast and ovarian cancer in carriers, but not all those who carry the gene will be unlucky enough to get cancer. And indeed, not all those that get those cancers have that particular gene. This is the typical case for most diseases. For example, there are several genes which have been identified as increasing the likelihood of something called long QT syndrome, a heart rhythm condition that can potentially cause fast chaotic heartbeats and result in sudden death. Unfortunately, long QT is frequently asymptomatic and only detected when suddenly someone dies. Whilst having the long QT-associated genes increases your likelihood of having long QT, it's not definitive evidence. How to respond in such circumstances to a positive test result is complex and difficult. In the case of long QT, for example, the behaviours that can reduce the likelihood of a long QT episode, such as avoiding some medications and certain types of activities, come with costs. Avoiding certain exercises may, for example, carry risks in of itself. In addition, the assessments of cost and benefit are also going to be different between people. Not all people, for example, that test for the BRCA gene will undergo a preventative mastectomy and removal of their ovaries. Given the implications of these interventions for childbearing, many carriers of the genes choose to opt for a greater frequency of mammograms and other screening until after they've had children. Others, with a lower risk threshold perhaps, choose to opt for surrogacy or other reproductive options rather than delay preventative surgery to bear children. Whilst we're not anywhere near the Gattaca dystopia, this all shows that there are still gnarly ethical and practical questions which arise from genetic testing. What, for example, would you do if you had a positive genetic test for a disease like breast cancer or long QT? What sort of factors would be important to you in deciding what to do in response to a positive test? Whilst the issues discussed thus far largely relate to the direct costs and benefits of testing to individuals, there are side effects to testing which go far beyond this. 
most of these relate to who has the right to the information we get from a genetic test. Because we get our genetic information from our parents, when we find out information about our genome, it can incidentally inform close relatives of their own genetic situation. For example, if I learn that I have the BRCA1 mutation, it gives my parents and siblings information about their likelihood of also having an increased risk of cancer. This raises ethical questions regarding our obligations to close relatives when it comes to disclosing genetic information. Are we required to disclose this sort of information to our relatives? What about if someone doesn't want to know about their genetic disposition, but will learn incidentally because of your response to testing? What's your responsibility there? What about those beyond your family? There are many that would like to know the results of genetic tests. Life insurers, for example. What access should such third parties have to your genetic data? Should you be required to disclose it to life insurers? Should we regulate this to avoid the sort of future where those with certain genes are effectively second-class citizens, like in Gattaca? challenge we'll consider is who owns your genetic information. While most of the tests we've discussed so far have been the sorts of tests that are done by medical professionals, there are several issues that arise in particular from direct-to-consumer tests. When you spit in a tube and send it off in the post for one of these tests, you're sending your genetic information to a commercial entity. Genetic information that, for the most part, they just add to their ever-growing databases. Whilst generally these companies give you the option to opt out of your information being put on their database, most people don't invoke this right. This is partly because of the reason that most people have these tests. They're interested in ancestry. They're interested in connecting themselves with long-lost relatives. Without the database, they can't do that. But because of this, these companies have some of the largest databases of human genetic diversity on Earth and they sell these databases for commercial gain. Whilst the genomes in the databases are supposed to be anonymised, there are examples of hackers demonstrating that they could de-anonymise the information and identify which DNA belongs to which people. It's more disturbing, perhaps, that many of these databases are large enough now that they can be used to identify individuals that have not donated their DNA at all. In a famous case in the United States, Police gained access to a commercial genetic database and were able to use a sample from their crime scene to identify relatives of a murderer and thus indirectly identify who the murderer was. Now, whilst any individual submitting a sample to 23andMe or Ancestry DNA may be making a prudent or appropriate individual choice, there are consequences of large numbers of us doing these tests that go far beyond the benign. Government regulation of the use of these databases is minimal. What do you think? Would you submit your DNA to one of these tests? Should you? Should there be better government regulation? You've been enjoying The P-Value, a podcast from the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. I'm your host, Dr Rachel Brown. See you next time.